This episode of Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. Sign up for a free 14-day trial, including a free download of your first book, just for trying out their service. Some of the available titles include Day After Day by Carlo Lucarelli, Some Girls Bite by Chloe Neal, and Reapers, a Botswana Mystery by Frederick Ramsey. So after you finish listening to BITD, why don't you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark and get your free audiobook today. Come inside. Ignore the strange stickiness of the carpet beneath your feet. Find the right seat, the one without the missing arm and the exposed springs. Pull the candy bar out of your inside coat pocket. Look at the color swirl as the canned music plays. Wait for the lights to go down. Listen for the telltale clacking of film being pulled through the gate. Relax. Watch. Because we all feel better, better in the dark. just saying before we started this that it seems like the last couple of directors course that we're doing it's more of tribute right and we have to come up with a name for this actually so yeah. if any of you guys out here have suggestions for these episodes that are really more tributes than anything else because really Dino De Laurentiis is a guy that while he got a bad rap through much of his career actually he was a very important and very influential yeah. figure in movie history we're going to spend some time celebrating discussing the life and career of Dino De Laurentiis but of course before we do that yes what are we doing we Thomas? just want to remind everybody that this episode of Better in the Dark is for one of our sponsors because we got another sponsor which, which we do we can talk about yeah. I guess after we do this but Better in the Dark is brought to you by audible.com which invites you to try their service for 14 days for free including a 
download of your first audiobook for nothing. Absolutely nada. We're talking about over 85,000 titles to choose from, mm-hmm. spanning the width and breadth and length of human knowledge. <laughs> To date. Now, as I always do, I pulled a couple of suggestions to keep into this episode of Better in the Dark, and Derek, I want you to figure out what the connecting thread is on these three rather different items are. Okay. You can get King Kong, the annotated edition, by Edgar Wallace and Marion C. Cooper. Okay. Death Wish by Brian Garfield. Okay. And Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, narrated by Chris Sarandon. Oh, wow. Okay. And what is the connection? All of these were, of course, movies that were produced by Neil And in the case of Red Dragon, twice. Twice. That's one of the most curious things about the man's career is that he was the one that brought Hannibal Lecter to the screen first. Right. Again, as we're saying, folks, the man made significant contributions. But he passed on Silence of the Lambs, which turned out to be the biggest Mm -hmm. success of all of the Hannibal Lecter movies. But he learned his lesson. He got his head involved in everyone after that. everyone after that, he certainly did. Never let it be said that the man did not learn from his mistakes. That's right. But yeah, that's the connecting thread between all of those folks. Of course, he was the guy behind the infamous King Kong remake, the first one of 1978. After you're done listening to this episode of Better in the Dark, and you want to download any of these or... The many, many other TV shows or radio shows or audiobooks that are available through audible.com. Just go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark and start your free trial today. Audible.com. Yeah, we've got another sponsor. Yes, we do. And, and if, tell us about that. Tell if us. you go to the www.bitdsite.com, you will find links that will take you to special offers provided us by the Warner Brothers Online Store. Which, you have to admit, is pretty sweet for those people who love the DC Animated Universe, who love... Harry Potter, and all the other great franchises and movies that were brought to us by Warner Brothers. Right. So, so you check the Better in the Dark Central site. Kelly's putting up different things every couple of weeks. And click through. Remember, every time you click through on one of our sponsors, we get a little something back. And since you cheap bastards won't send us any money, we have to resort to well, haven't heard our appeal yet. <laughs> I know. I don't want to The appeal comes up, actually, we're recording this on the 19th of November, 2010. And we should say, also, since we are recording this on the 19th, by the time that you'll hear this, Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving usually is very quiet for us. Those of you who live in the New York area... You know, trying to get around the city on yeah. Thanksgiving is like a freaking nightmare. Hey, that's you know? bad. Wait until the day after. Uh, well, I'm not going to be out. But let Patricia go venture off into the darkness of Black Friday by herself? Hell yeah. Okay. Hell yeah. Her and sister-in-law and Patricia and, and her friends will get yeah. together and they will go attack the store. Right. Go ahead and do it. Fine. You go. I No. No. I don't go out there in Black Friday. And it's weird because on one hand, there are some things I want to do. One of the MP3 players I use for the music at the store is really beginning to malfunction. It's a slightly older Sansa disc. Mm-hmm. So I think the firmware is now obsolete, so it's beginning to behave erratically, so I want to replace it. Since the new Sansa clips are has good, they're now expandable. So with a micro disc, I can get another four gigs 
or eight gigs of music in there. I gotcha. Yeah, that's sweet. So yeah. usually Radio Shack marks them down on Black Friday, but it's like, do I really want to go in there? Yeah, yeah, you really don't want to. I remember once I mistakenly went into a Kmart on Black Friday, and I still have nightmares. Yeah. The only reason I might, but even then, I might just give my money and let her mm-hmm. go get it. The only thing I really want is the Xbox 360 yeah. with the Connects. Oh, yeah. You know, system, right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think that my poor old Xbox is starting to die yeah, out. The Red Circle of Death is about to make its presence known. The other day I was on there and yeah. I was playing Red Dead Revolver. And I left it alone for a while. I went upstairs and I got myself something to eat. I came back downstairs. And the ring wasn't red. It was orange. And I said, oh, shit, it's getting ready to die. But it's about time because I've had it for years. Mind you, folks, I have the black Xbox, the original yeah. vibe. That's how long. And people ask me all the time, how come you don't get the 360? Well, it works. What's yeah. wrong? Exactly. You know, why get rid of it? It's funny, I was in the new Best Buy that opened up near you on Atlantic Commons. Right. I was looking at the PC gaming, because I wanted to see if they had the cards for the Champions Online. Okay. The time cards. And a very happy, very cheerful, very helpful young woman comes up and, Oh, what are you looking for? Are you looking for this? I'm saying, I don't have a console. And I said, what I usually say is, I know that if I had a console, even though I've been tempted quite often, I would get no work done at home. <laughs> and she goes, oh, that must explain it, because I have a console, I had no work done at home. I was like, ma'am, I did not mean it to be insulting. I didn't, mm. like, just, she was just like having fun and yeah. all, but that's the thing. My friend Juan keeps saying, you should get a console and we can go and play Red Dead Redemption together mm-hmm. through Xbox Live. Remember the old Sega Genesis? Oh, sure. I had one. I had one from there. Here's a name from the past. Funko Land. Oh, wow. I got one of those refurbished ones. Remember these yeah, refurbished ones I, for uh-huh. $25? Yup, I remember. So I got a refurbished Sega Genesis, and I bought two games for my friend Cardi, mm-hmm. one of which was Star Control. Okay. I love Star Control. And uh, yeah, well, me and you have talked in the yeah. past about Sega Genesis, which was yeah. the very first CD game. You remember they had the CD that yep. you had to attach on? I think it was called the Graph-X, yeah. the CD attachment. I loved Eternal Champions. Yeah. I would sit up till that 3 thing, or 4. Though, was a bitch. 3 or 4 in the morning I played Eternal Champions. I played as Lupin. Yeah. The uh, Cat Burglar. Right, the Cat Burglar. But the yeah. thing is, is that that game, it had like the most complex special moves in the world. Yeah, but it was fun. Oh. And they had the guy that had the buzzsaw. Yep. Come out of his arm, he would come, and the blade would keep going back yep. and forth, slicing people mm-hmm. up. Oh, I love the Eternal Champions. I don't know why somebody hasn't got the right to I think it's do that. Because most people have the same experience I have, which is that gameplay was so difficult that most people gave up. It wasn't like me who just, I just liked the idea of playing this kind of like. 30s cat burglar. Yeah, dude. right, yeah. They had all these different characters from different points in history, yeah. and they weren't like your typical samurai warrior. Yeah. And they had the Beast Man from right. the future, and they had, mm-hmm. oh man, it was a great game. The only other fighting game that I've gotten anywhere near as addicted to has been Soul Calibur. I oh. used to pause it Soul, though. Yeah. The guy with the blades on his hand? Oh, Boldo. Boldo, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Boldo. He was supposed to be blind and deaf, if I remember correct. But he had them freaky moves, and he turns back, and he goes... Kind of like how... He's like a zombie. Yeah. Kind of like how I imagined if they ever did, like, this is ever going to happen, a Secret Six movie, mm-hmm. how I imagined they would have the ragdoll yeah. move. No, that yeah, that's how Boldo moves, like he's got no bones. Remember he had that one move where he flipped over on his back, but he was on his hands, and it would do that like, kind of like backwards crawling thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, real creepy looking. Oh, man. I know Soul Calibur is still available. And, and of course, it's got... Yeah. I don't care what anybody said about Laura Croft. Soul Calibur had the hottest video bait mm-hmm. of all time. Ivy. Okay, which one was Ivy? Ivy was the chicken, the George Washington outfit. She had two outfits. And okay. she had the sword that broke apart like a whip. And she had the short platinum hair. You sure that's not... A- 
What was the name of Soul? Because Soul Calibur had another name where they did an update of it, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Because I'm thinking maybe she came from one of the later updates. Okay, well, she's on the one that I've got, because yeah. I've got Soul Calibur 2. They had two versions of Soul Calibur 2. Mm-hmm. The one I have, Spawn is a playable character. This is way yeah. after. With the exception of stuff like Eternal Champions, I was strictly a stand-up console guy when it oh. came to my fight games. No. Fighting games was like my favorite kind of video game. Oh yeah, me too. I love playing the various Capcom versus games. Mm-hmm. You know, like Capcom Three, where you would have the three guys who I would play as Felicia from Darkstalkers. Darkstalkers, the, the cat girl. Mm-hmm. Felicia, Gambit, and Cable. I've seen it played. I've never played it, but I know yeah. people that swear, well, by, that, that swear by that game. Darkstalkers was cool because it was a horror game. It was all the different horror characters. But the best one was like they did the second Darkstalkers and they had like a Chinese ghost character. Oh, wow. Their hands would just enormous and slap you around and mm-hmm. stuff. It was very strange. See, that's why, in me, like I've got very few games. Right. I've only got about six. Because I could see if I had more. Right. Yeah, I'd be playing forever. Oh, man. And I go to my brother in law's house. Uh, I got a friend down here. Yeah. And he's just got stacks and stacks of these games. And he sits there and he plays them all the way through. One just got Call of Duty's Black Ops. That's yeah. the one that just broke the record. For you people that don't know, it set a record now for selling out the most. A billion dollars. Before the release, Juan went over, because there's my store, next to it is a Burger King, and next to the Burger King is a GameStop. All right. Juan went over to the GameStop to reserve Call of Duty the mm-hmm. week before the release. He comes back and goes, Tom, you're not going to believe this. You know mm-hmm. how many people have in that store alone? This is like a smaller store. Yeah. 1,100 people had pre-ordered Call of Duty's Black Ops. And that was a week before. A week before, yeah. The two weirdest games, I used to like going to Chinatown Fair because they would have stuff that was being beta tested or stuff that was imported from China. The two weirdest ones, they had a giant robot fighting game that never came to America that I got to play. I think some of the characters showed up in Marvel vs. Capcom mm-hmm. and the various Marvel vs. Capcom games. The other one, and I've told you about this, and it's a crappy game. Don't get me wrong, but I was one of the very, very few who got to play Avengers... Galactic Storm. Ah. I've the 3D Red Yes, I have heard of this. <laughs> you think Avengers United They Stand was pretty crappy in terms of animation? It was from way, way early in the cycle of 3D yeah. render video games. It was pretty bad. The game mechanic was you got to choose one of six characters, either a Kree or an Avenger. Then you got to choose a tag team partner, plus you got to choose a helper. Mm-hmm. So you could have Black Knight and Crystal with Giant Man as your helper. Okay. Already this is too complicated. So you can tag team out and have Crystal come in and fight for you for a while. Okay. And if you really needed the help, you press the button in a certain way, and Giant Man would grow to gigantic proportion. His hand would just come out, <laughs> grab your opponent, and go, squeeze, 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 and then go back. Okay. Yes. But it was a terrible game. But I loved it because it was just weird having that game there. But we've already spent enough time, and we haven't done Oh, yeah, yeah. I, we haven't even talked about poor Mr. Dinorenzo. Yeah, I want to do one piece of listener mail before we move on from our good friend, the musical maestro, the man who's been insane enough to take on this task of writing a new theme song for every episode between 90 and 100. Not only new and customized the, for each episode as yeah, well. I've been sending him the quote. So he even puts the quotes in now. Right. We, of Mr. course, are talking about Mr. Kalen Conley. That's right. And Kalen goes, Hey, guys. This is a quick question I'd like you to address in an upcoming show, if possible. I know the plan has always been to redo your Indiana Jones episode to include the Kingdom of Crystal Skulls. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping you still do in the future. Thing is, my hip-hop manifesto co-host, Matthew 
Chivalry, Spencer. Hey, Matthew. And I got into a Twitter argument about Indy 4, which is an upgrade for their usual arguments. It's usually about who gets to take home Sasha Gray. Mm. He thinks it was a complete garbage, while I was very happy with the movie as a whole. Now, my point of view is based on my intense fandom of the Indy series, so I definitely know I'm biased. He's biased because he holds Hollywood directly responsible for all the shitty movies he's watched over the years. He ended our argument with... What does Derek Ferguson have to say about Crystal Skull? And, if the Better the Dark guys thought it was a great movie, I'll admit I know garbage about good cinema. I tried to find one of Derek's patented reviews so I could respond to his query, but to no avail. So either it's in one of Derek's review books, insert plug here. <laughs> Go ahead, Derek. Derek Ferguson's movie review notebook. And the return of Derek Ferguson's movie review notebook, now available on Amazon.com. Or he never wrote an official review. So for the record, what is BITD's stance on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? I'm thinking you both disliked it, but I suppose we shall soon see. Thanks, Kalen. Okay, first of all, yes, we are going to redo the Indiana Jones movies. We are going to get to that. I promise we're going to do it. Tom and I both want to do it, and it will get done. But you want to know right now what Mm -hmm. we thought of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'm going to tell you what I thought. It wasn't a great Indiana Jones movie for me, and this is where everybody's going to hate me now. The great Indiana Jones movie is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Right. And now I can hear all over the land, jaws are dropping. I'm sorry, but for me, that one is the most pulpiest out of all of them. Raiders, okay. That one was a tribute to Saturday morning serials. Right. With its cliffhangers every couple of minutes. They had right. one cliffhanger after another. But Temple of Doom, to a Pope fan like me... That was more like the original Pulse with the darkness and the danger. I know you really felt like Indiana Jones was in danger. At least I did in that movie. There were some points I thought, well, how is he going to get out of this one? Mm -hmm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and The Last Crusade, I kind of juggle them both. They're kind of even for me. I did not dislike it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I didn't hate it. I do admit that George Lucas's absolute love that edges on the orgasmic of CGI, in many cases, really blunted the impact of a lot of what was going on. I'm sorry there are no ants in nature that are as large as those ants. Right. And monkeys don't instinctively know who's the good guy. That's about the only scene out of all of the Indiana Jones movies that I really wish had been cut out. The whole Tarzan thing with the monkeys. I love the sword fight on top of the two cars. And that's the other thing. Everybody wants to piss all over Shia LaBeouf. Shia of beef. (laughs) But I don't think he was the problem here. I do think that they had opportunities to do something a little different. Yeah. Like, for example, since they couldn't have Marcus Brody back because the actor who played Marcus right. died, Den they could have yeah. gone with an entirely different character in that role. But they instead brought Jim Broadbent in to do Marcus Light. Right. Is it flawed? Yeah, it's Which flawed. I have no problem yeah. with because they had that nice, wonderful little moment where Indiana Jones at his desk, mm-hmm. he's got a picture of his father yeah. and Marcus, and he's lamenting. And that's another thing I like about the movie. They acknowledge that Indiana yeah. Jones is getting older. Right. Especially during the fight scene he has mm-hmm. with that big Russian. No matter how hard he tries, he can't beat this guy. I mean, right. look at and you can see the despair in Indiana Jones' face right. when he realizes he's still yeah. not the man he was. He can't beat this guy. To finish up my thoughts, I'm going to quote a great, great man, Mr. Roger Ebert, about this film. And I think that when he said this, this kind of crystallized what I felt. Mm-hmm. Think about pizza. Okay. That first slice of pizza that you get fresh out of the box is great, right? Absolutely. Now, the last slice out of the box, it's nowhere near as good as that first slice, but it's still good, right? Yeah. 
Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is that last slice of pizza. Excellent point, my friend, because people got to realize something. You're never going to get that same rush that you had the first time you saw yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm sorry. I think that's what people would expect. Right. That's gone. Yeah. You've already had that. Now, you know Indiana Jones. You're not going to get away from that. You just got to deal with it for what it is. The only way I think you can get it back, and I've been saying this for years, and people have been saying, I'm crazy, but I'm sorry. You got to have a new Indiana Jones. Right. I know they talk about the fifth one now with Harrison Ford. What's right. he going to do being in a wheelchair in this one? Right. With whips that are controlled by how fast he rolls. <laughs> this is what you do. You get a guy who already has played Indiana Jones. Right. Sean Patrick Flannery. Right. He's in his 40s. He's young enough to do a whole new trilogy of movies set during World War II. That's not Let, such a bad idea at all. I'm thinking... Let's see some of those wartime adventures yeah. that remember the Crystal Skull. They mentioned mm-hmm. that Indiana Jones had been active. And he was working. working. He was and he was a colonel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, get Sean Patrick Flat. Let's see some of those right. World War II adventures. This is common for a lot of these franchises that have been dormant for a long time and then a new one comes out. Is that I think that everybody pictures that it's going to be the same exact thing. Everybody thought Crystal Skull was going to be the same exact thing as Raiders was back in 1982. Right. But it can't possibly be because things have changed over the course of the 30 years. Which is why it's going to be interesting to see what the reaction to Tron Legacy is going to be in a couple of weeks. Now, I've seen the kind of extended trailer that they did to kind of promote the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. I'm really jazzed for this film. So am I. I'm really looking forward to this. I will never understand why, and whenever I bring up the subject of somebody else, well, only Harrison Ford can play in the end. Why is it that we can have different actors playing Superman and different actors playing Batman and James Bond, but we can't have anybody else playing Indiana Jones? I also have to wonder. Give me a break already. If the reaction to, and I'm not a Star Wars guy, if... The reaction to the quote-unquote first trilogy, episodes one to three, was just the fact that people refused to take into account that some 15 years had passed between the first three exactly. and this next three. And they were like, no, that's not what's supposed to happen. And of course, George Lucas wasn't the same person as he was back of then. Of course not. The man's been through a divorce. He's been through personal things. His worldview has changed. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He's, world, he's you know, much more family-orientated. He's not the same man he was when he did the original Star Wars. Yeah, so you were not going to get... The same. Heaven forbid that we had got the same Star Wars oh, because yeah. that meant he did not grow and mature as an artist. Right. For right or for wrong, he's a different man. Right. I go along with everybody else. I don't hate the new trilogy that he did, but yes, in a lot of ways, it was a disappointment to me as a Star Wars fan. A lot of it was a disappointment. Most of it had to do with character, the character of Anakin yeah. and had me and the actors he cast in yeah. that role who I felt was severely miscast. Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd have it right with this new Ghostbusters that they're developing in that they're doing it as a CGI film. In that you can have the same actors but you're not going to try to fool us into thinking they're the same people because exactly. they're going to use the CGI to give us an approximation mm-hmm. of the classic characters. Right. We may still like to tech because their voices are older, obviously, because they're older people. Their voices are a little more cracked. Right. But I think that the illusion will be able to be kept much stronger there. Okay, I think so, too. So my rankings of the Indiana Jones movie... My favorite, Indiana Jones. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. I can pull out my box set and show you. Time. That's the order in which I watch yeah. them. I watch Temple of Doom, then Raiders of the Lost Ark, then Last Crusade, 
than Kingdom of so the Crystal Chronologically, yeah. The only thing is, I just switched Temple of yeah, Doom because, and, yeah, because yeah. everything else goes forward. Right. I thought the ending was a letdown, yeah, with the big spaceship thingy coming out and everything But that like was something, that. I, think, I think if I remember correctly, it was just George wanted that and there was no way to dissuade him. Well, that was part of the reason why it took so long to get the damn right. movie made because apparently Steven Spielberg couldn't talk him out of it and Harrison Ford couldn't talk him out of it. This is the thing. He had to have these aliens and the spaceship and, and to whatever. to be fair, if the two that were quote-unquote 30 set, Raiders and Temple of Doom, were supposed to be reflective of a genre that was active during that time, right. i.e. the Saturday morning serial. Mm-hmm. And Last Crusade was... A Man of Fortune movie, Mm -hmm. which was a genre that was active during the 40s. Mm -hmm. It makes kind of sense for Crystal Skull, a film set in the 50s, Mm -hmm. to be a kind of science fiction-y aliens are among us. Well, that was the whole thing that they were saying, yeah. Crystal Skull, I love the opening sequence with them taking the Jones to Area 51 and they're trying to find a case with the alien and Kate Blanchett. There's a lot of missed opportunities in this film. She's not as memorable as Marion Ravenwood, which is why they brought her back, because... That's something that Indiana Jones has fallen down. Except for Marion, nobody likes the yeah. women in Indiana Jones well, movie. You see, okay, I think it was just because she was so arbitrary. There's no real reason for her to be a her. Yeah. Now, I mean, if, could... let's say, I think you and I discussed this as a possibility, if we went back in time to rewrite that script, if we had established that they had encountered each other during World War II, when it, right. Russia and America were still allies, right. and if they actually had a fling together. Exactly. Do something. They even did that with the woman, and see, this is how bad she was. I can't even remember the name of the character or the actress. Elsa Schneider? Right. Allison Duty. I can never forget that name. Exactly. How could you forget a name like Duty? I still contend that the guy who reviewed that film for The Village Voice was right in that Steven Spielberg cast her solely because he thought her name was funny. Which is probably why we have not seen her since yeah. then. Did not her manager say, you might want to consider yeah. changing your name? Right. <laughs> yeah, but even then, they had them have a fling. So yeah. there was a little bit of emotional right. thing in there where it got... Yeah, there's no real reason for the character to be a woman. And I think that they said, Kate Blanchett, she's available and she wants to work with you. Right. I think that that's actually how that or deal went down. Or even they had much. Kind of like make a pass at her or something. Something, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, there's real no reason. We'll but, be talking more about this film sometime in the future. But anyway, uh, Kaylin, I hope that this resolves the argument yeah. between you guys. Yes, I do not hate Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's basically the best way to say it. we don't hate it. Yeah, we may not like it all that much, but we I don't, don't hate it. Yeah, I don't turn handsprings in. As a matter of fact, I've probably seen Crystal Skull more than I have Last Crusade. Believe it or uh-huh. not, that's probably the movie I've seen the least. Temple of Doom, I've seen by thirty. Once I've seen theaters. And I saw it once when I got the DVD. I have not seen it again since. What's that? Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull. Whereas okay. I've seen the other three. With, because that was like the first DVD purchase I made from FYE when FYE opened across the street from us. Okay. Because they had it on sale for $25. Was that box set. And I've seen all of those multiple times, both in the movies. And you got the box set, all four of them, for how much? No. It was back when, before there was a fourth. So it was, all ca- all it was the three before they put all the extra features and Argo Bargo on them, and mm. a fourth disc, which had the documentary about the making of the films. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's all I can say. I don't hate it. I don't turn handsprings over it, right. but I don't hate it either. We're now 30, 36 minutes into the raw and, feed, and we haven't said word one about see you guys get a lot more extra in this episode do you want to do the biography or should I do the biography you do it because you have the speaking voice okay Dina De Laurentiis was born in 1919 in Torre Annunziata Campania Italy 
See, you did a better job of that than I would have. He left home at age 17 to enroll in film school, supporting himself as an actor, extra prop man, or any other job he could get in the film industry. His persistence paid off, and by the time he reached his 20th birthday, he already had one produced film under his belt. After serving in the Italian Army during World War II, De Laurentiis went back into film production and in 1946 scored a critical and commercial international hit with Bitter Rice. He later married its star, Silviana Mangiana, De Laurentiis eventually formed a partnership with producer Carl Ponte, and the team had a string of hits, including several by director Federico Fellini. After the partnership dissolved, De Laurentiis embarked on a plan to build his own studio facilities, and the rest is history because he then proceeded to produce a whole crap load of films that became very famous and or infamous. Now, let me ask you a question, Tom. Yes. Based on what you know of mm-hmm. the man from your extensive film history, would you not consider him to be the Roger Corman of Italy? That might work in that he also, much like Roger Corman, yeah. gave a lot of people their start in movies. See, I was going to go that he was more than any other Italian, because Italy has one of the most vibrant and alive film industries, at least until fairly recently, which Italian television began to pull the strings on it. Well, I think they were right behind India. No, no, India, India, that's India, true. India, that's yeah, right. India. India is probably, I got five hours, let's make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> But I would equate Tina De Laurentiis more along the lines of one of the big studio moguls. Oh, from the 30s. From the 30s. Like Uh, Louis B. Mayer. Exactly. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, Alan Lance Sr. Alan Lance Sr., yeah. These people who, first off, they were somewhat larger than life themselves, so they were as much a part of the movie as the the movie itself. I got you. Also because he was one of these people who had his fingers in all different kinds of pots. Oh, yeah. So he would turn around and do Death Wish, and then go and do a big, sweeping, historical epic the next time. That's why I never could understand, and I say that Dino De Laurentiis got a bad rap, Mm because people talk about all the schlocky movies he made. But his name was connected with an extensive amount of prestigious projects. Shall I go through some highlights? Go ahead. Let's go okay. down the list and we'll knock them off one Shall by we, one. I'm going to go from more recent to last, okay? Okay. We've already talked about the various Thomas Harris-related films that he produced. Right. Including Hannibal Rising, Red Dragon, Hannibal, and, of course, Manhunter, which is a favorite of both of ours, I think. Yeah, I love Manhunter. Assassins, the incredibly insane Sylvester Stallone Armando Sante film. I still have never seen that film. Army of Darkness. Ah, there you go, Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi. Yeah. King Kong Lives and King Kong. Now, King Kong Lives is just downright goofy. That's goofy. goofy. That's downright goofy. That's I go- mean, they build an artificial heart. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget, this is the man who thought it was a good idea to give Stephen King a motion picture camera. Oh, my since God. Since he produced Maximum Overdrive. Oh, Lord. The Year oh. of the Dragon. Ah, Mickey Rourke. Mickey that- Rourke and Michael Cimino. Yeah. He, he was a guy who said, you got a better break with the Heavens of Gate. I give you another right. chance. And that's exactly what he did. Nobody was going to give right. Michael Cimino money to film a birthday party. <laughs> but he gave him that. And that's a damn good movie. Right. For those of you who haven't seen it, Year the Dragon is yeah. pretty good. And it's a movie that came under quite a bit of heat when it was out because of the racial things yep. as people would say well there's some sensitive stuff in there Dune and Blue Velvet ah they, you know, two you films go. by David Lynch. David Lynch The Dead Zone an early David Cronenberg yeah. probably the transition from the David Cronenberg that was making films in Toronto and the more mature David Cronenberg who did The Fly and Dead Ringers and it's a movie 
that doesn't get the credit it should because it's one of the more faithful adaptations of a King book to movie. It's very faithful and ends on a very dark black note. That's a favorite of mine as well. Conan the Barbarian and its sequel, ah, Conan the Destroyer. How could we forget that? Flash Gordon. Flash! Savior of the universe. Down, 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 down. He's alive. Dive. <laughs> Dive. It gave us Timothy Dalton as a cosmic Robin Hood. <laughs> Folks, I'm sorry. If you don't like Flash Gordon, then you need to stop watching movies. Because yeah. Flash Gordon is a movie movie. You know you're watching a movie. Yeah. You don't give a shit. It's just so much fun to watch. Then we got Buffalo Bill and the Indians or Sitting Bull's History Lesson. Directed by Robin Altman. Yeah. I saw that recently. See, this is one of the things that I wanted to bring up when we talked about this, is that while he wasn't somebody who started a lot of careers, he was somebody who maybe helped people transition. Like Cronenberg and Raimi, who were these little, tiny guys who were working in Mm B-movies, and helped them transition into being major motion picture directors. Because DeLaurentis wasn't just a producer, Mm -hmm. he was a mogul. He had an immense machine behind him, and he could put these movies into as many theaters as he wanted, because he had that name and he had that clout. A lot of these guys might have stayed B directors or they might have got to where they are later on, but it's a certainty that they did because Laurentis gave them that shot. Serpico. There you go. Al Pacino. Yep. One of the classic 70s cops movies, which was a standout Mm -hmm. in a decade that gave us a whole bunch of great cop movies. Right. A film that we are probably going to talk about a lot in the future at some point when we decide where we're going to put it. Danger Diabolic. Ah, yes. By Mario Bava. Yeah, Mario, another great director. People talk about psychedelic cinema, and this one is a great psychedelic film, that one's a great psychedelic film. Mm -hmm. This is one of the few really true great psychedelic films. You watch, and it is batshit insane. This is one of the few movies that you watch, mm-hmm. and you actually feel like you're on an LSD trip. And I know from experience. And, <laughs> and the great thing about the star of the film, John Philip Law. John Philip Law, yeah. Who gets more out of his eyebrows than any actor alive. <laughs> it's a completely it's so batshit bizarre. insane movie. You watch this, oh. it's nuts. It is the most bizarre thing ever, but I love it. It is. It, we're talking about a movie movie. You know yeah. you're watching a movie, you don't care. It doesn't take you out of yourself. It's more like you just sit there and you can't believe what you're watching. Yeah. And you can't wait for the next thing, so you can't believe that either. <laughs> then we get Barbarella, the film that made people go, hey, you know that Jane Fonda kid? She's really kind of hot. John Philip Lowe's in that one too. Yes, he, he played the he played the blind wing guy, yeah. right? Yeah. What else do we have here? Now I'm into his Italian stuff like Goliath and the Vampire. A lot of Policia films like Mafiosa, The Police Commissioner, and I just love this title. I'm just going to put. And suddenly it's murder. <laughs> I don't know what it's about, but I just like the title. Well, this is during the 70s, right? This is, no, we're now into the 60s. War and Peace. Did he produce the Steve Reeves, Hercules movies? Um, I'm, I'm looking. I'm not sure. I know sure. he's done, well, obviously, Goliath and the Vampire is a pelplum. Well, that was during the yeah. period when the Muscleman movie, the Sword of Sandal movies. Yeah, I, I don't thought, see any. I do I, not see I any. I thought maybe he might have had a hand in those as well. Apparently not. But I know he did produce a lot of those Sword and Sandal movies of that period. But a lot of just 
really great stuff. I mean, you could see that there was a great variety of stuff that he was doing. De Laurentiis was never a guy that turned down a good idea, as you can see from the yeah. diversity of the movies that he did. I mean, and this was just some of the big name stuff. We're not counting stuff like The Serpent's Egg, which was an Ingmar Bergman film, or The King of the Gypsies. Remember The King of the Gypsies? Yeah. One of Eric Roberts' yes. first movies? Yes, it was. If not his first. Three Days of the Condor. Of the Condor. A very good CIA spy suspense. Robert Redford and mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway, I believe. Yeah. One that I remember very fondly from when I was younger, Crazy Joe. Oh, okay. I think it was Ben Gazzara, Ben Gazzara, yeah. Ben Gazzara playing Crazy Joe Gallo. Yeah. A lot of just, like, really great, great, insane stuff. Plus, he did a bunch of TV movies, including an adaptation of Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back. Okay. Obviously, he slowed down a bit, and I think also a lot of it he passed on to his daughter after a certain time. Yeah, wasn't it? Raffaella. Raffaella De Laurentiis, yeah. Who has since gone on to form her own production house, SMG. Yeah. As opposed to DLG, which is Dino De Laurentiis Group. And yes, for those of you who are Food Network fans, he is related to Giada De Laurentiis, who is one yeah. of the hosts. She has her own cooking show. She's one of the most popular cooks on there. Yes, I believe he's her granduncle yeah. or something like that. Oh, I should also mention, not because it's particularly any good, but it does feature one of my favorite James Woods performances, Cat's Eye. Oh, yeah! Of course. Cat's I mean, Eye, that, yeah. That first segment. The smoking the section yeah. where he's trying to quit smoking. The quitter. If you've ever wondered what Alan King would be like, dressed as Elvis, going down the stairs, singing a version of Every Breath You Take, yeah, this is the movie for you. This is the movie for you. Yeah, that's like the best one out of all. If you watch Cat's Eye, the whole movie's pretty good, it's, actually. Yeah, the second... The longer it goes... Yeah the more it runs out of steam. The second segment, the adaptation of The Ledge, the is Ledge. probably the weakest. Featuring, of course, where we've talked about how bad an actor he is before. Kluger Luger and Robert Hayes from yeah. the airplane movies. And the third one is kind of okay, the one with Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore, But yeah. the, the highlight is definitely the first, is Quitter's Oh, Hayes. absolutely. That's what they, well, they couldn't end on that because they had to end. The whole linking device, for those of you who yeah. haven't seen it, we followed this cat. Mm-hmm. And this cat is seeing images of Drew Barrymore. Right. They start the movie off. It's a very amusing sequence where the cat is almost run over by yeah. Christine. Right. And it's chased by Cujo. Exactly. And, like you a know, whole number of little nods at previous. Right. And the cat is keep having visions of Drew Barrymore saying that she needs help. Mm-hmm. So the cat is traveling to where she lives at. And he gets involved because he's taken by Alan King and right. put in the room. To demonstrate to, 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 demonstrate to James Woods what? what's going to happen. Because James Woods said, oh, well, you think you're going to put me in that? They said, oh, no, we're going to put your, your wife, wife in there. there. We're not going to put And if that doesn't work, we're going to put your daughter in there. And the cat escapes. Right. And then he escapes to Atlantic City, mm-hmm. and he briefly gets involved with Robert Hayes, and then we follow his yeah. story. And then in, at the last story, he gets to the house with right. Drew Barrymore to find out that she's being terrorized by this troll that yeah. lives in the, the walls of her house. The troll creature created by Carlo Rambaldi, one of the great monster makers of all time. Right. The guy who brought us E.T., which was a... I'm sorry, I don't care. I know it's a kid's movie. I know a lot of people think it's a wonderful family classic. That was a creepy-looking motherfucker. I think it was crap, actually. You notice I didn't say either way about the quality. Quality of the movie. And again, I hear George dropping all over yeah. America. I can't stand E.T. I wouldn't have that thing in my house. Even if I was a kid, I wouldn't think that was I'd cute. shoot it dead. I'd be running away screaming for my mommy. Are you kidding me? Are you going to bring this thing home? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I've seen E.T. two or three times. And I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I won't have it in my house. 
<laughs> I won't. I, every time that DVD... I don't think I've ever seen... Except for that first time I saw it in the theaters when it first opened back in 1980-whatever. I don't think I've ever seen it again. And I remember going to the theater to see it. Who did I go with? My father. My father loves it. We went to see it, and we argued about it, and he didn't talk to me for a couple days after that. Because even back then, I hated the movie. Yeah. Years later, I said, I've gotten a little bit older, I'm a little bit yeah. more mature, let me watch it again. Nope. Hated yeah. it again. That was when it came out on VHS. Yeah. That's right. Then, years again later, I saw it when it was on DVD. Again, let me give it a try. Still hate it. <laughs> Still it's hate it. It's kind of like why I go to McDonald's once a year to eat lunch. Mm-hmm. Just prove to myself that I still can't stand the stuff. Yeah. Although I admit, I like the McRib. Oh, well, who does Who does exactly. Who doesn't like Now, okay, do you remember the first commercial they did for the McRib? Back when they first introduced the sandwich back in 1979 or something. Who was in the commercial? It was a bus driver and a construction worker. And they're on the bus. The bus driver is going, what's wrong, Chuck? I have a taste for ribs, but I, while it's mighty low. Well, why didn't you say so, buddy? To McDonald's we will go. (laughs) See, only you would remember shit Nobody else remembers this thing. (laughs) You remember shit like that. And I've been looking for it on YouTube, and I can't find it. You have went on YouTube and tried to find yes. it? YouTube that has everything yes. on there going back to the beginning of time and it's not on there. Yes. So what does that tell you, Thomas? I swear this thing exists. Because they were singing, they drove up to McDonald's, they got McRib sandwiches while the narrator talked about how great they were, and they ate it. And everybody was happy. And Tom, let me ask you something. Was this before or after the unicorn came and shat fairies no. on your doorstep? No, there is no unicorn. But listen, if any of you people out there can find this video and help Tom out, <laughs> please, feel free. Yes, please. If YouTube has got every little bit of obscure yeah. video that you can possibly imagine up on there, doesn't have that. <laughs> Then I'm inclined to think it don't exist, Thomas. It does. It does. It's out there. I'm sure of it. Now, granted, not everything that Dino De Laurentiis did was so great. There was that obsession he had with outdoing Jaws, which brought us first the infamous second King Kong mm-hmm. with a very young Jessica... Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange. Took her... Matter of fact, her career took such a hit, it wasn't until she made the Postman Always yeah. Twice remake with Jack Nicholson. That's when her career... Mm-hmm. And I think that was five years after yeah. King Kong. And the way it goes is that he originally wanted to do this animatronic Kong, this big, life-size animatronic Kong that just didn't work and looked as phony as all hell. I think there's one shot in the movie you see it. So they ended up with Rick Baker in a suit. Right. That didn't work out, even though I think it made a lot of money, it was still considered a bomb. A lot of people think that that movie was this huge major flop. It actually wasn't. It actually made its money back. It took a critical hit. Yeah, a lot of people were saying, oh yeah, well, it's not. But then back then, people were just as hard on remakes as people are nowadays. They say, oh, how are you going to remake King Kong? I don't hate it, especially since I was in it. You were in it. I was in, yeah, Tell I was in the story. I was in King Kong. Back then, it needed extras to come for the scene because in this version, King Kong climbs the World Trade Center, of course. And it's funny that the most vivid image I can call up of this film is not from the movie itself, but the poster. Well, that's what most people think of, which yeah. King Kong standing with one foot astride, on the, yeah. astride the World Trade Center. Of course, he's shot down by helicopters mm-hmm. in this version, and he falls to the bottom. They needed extras. 
to come. And of course, they couldn't hire that many extras because, of course, they wanted a whole because it's supposed to be in New York. It's a whole bunch of people. There's a giant on the towers! So they took out a full-page ad in newspapers. It was in the Daily News. And they was inviting people, listen, come down to the World Trade Center at such and such a time and be an extra in the King Kong movie. I was in high school at the time. Me and my friend said, well, let's go down there. And we went down there about 2 o'clock in the morning. And they brought out King Kong in sections. Yeah. Because this was a giant phone call. Yeah. And they had fake rubble. <laughs> I remember that they were shoveling out fake rubble and they put it all around it. And we were out there all night long. Phrases you never thought you would hear your best friend utter. Giant foam Kong. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> That's what it was. It sounds vaguely like some sort of obscene sexual practice. Hey, baby, you want some giant foam Kong tonight? <laughs> Giant phone call for your mama. <laughs> anyway. I got giant phone call for your mama. <laughs> somewhere. I, got, I got giant phone call for your mama. Hey. Said, hey. Giant phone call. Giant, giant, giant phone call. Giant, giant phone call. Okay, that's over. Yes, back on track. The point being, after King Kong didn't do it as well as he wanted, Giant Phone Kong notwithstanding, he did the next year The White Buffalo. Now, that's a very underrated movie. If we get back to be a responsible podcasting host here for a minute, that's the one with Charles Bronson playing Wild Bill Hickok. Yes, looking to kill the cannibalistic wild. Well, it's not cannibalistic, it's not even. The buffalo. Well, it's a man-eating white buffalo. Yeah, well, it's like a Moby Dick yeah. story, actually. If you wanted to do Moby Dick as a Western, and the buffalo is a metaphor for his own death that he's chasing, yeah. kind of. But it's a very underrated Western. A lot right. of people that I know that like Westerns say, well, they really don't care for it. It's a Western that you really have to right. sit down and get into. And it's got a very fine performance by Charles Bronson, who a lot of people claim couldn't act. Right. But yes, he did. Man was a good actor, and this was something different that he was trying. Would you say that Bronson was one of these people that we like to refer to as the lazy actor. The person who would appear in something and if it didn't interest him, he'd be like, okay, here I am. He was like that in his later years. Yeah. Once he started doing crap like Death Wish 3 and yeah. 4 and the big crackdown and he was doing like, oh. Well, yeah, that last 15 years of his yeah. life, he was just, well, this is what people, I can't do a good process. No process, that weird kind of high voice. Mm-hmm. But he thought, well, this is what people want to see me in, so... Let me give it to them over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, I kind of feel that that kind of tarnished his legacy. Mm -hmm. Because remember during the 80s, Cannon was giving him... It was like every other week Mm -hmm. there was a new Charles Bronson movie coming out. And it was the same crap over and over and over again. Except I think the last... And I'm trying to remember the name of this film. There was this film that he did which was kind of sort of his tribute to Casablanca. Mm-hmm. It was him and his wife, Jill Ireland, because she appeared in every one of his films. Just about. Jeff Goldblum was in this one as well. It was maybe, I think, very early 80s, and it was probably the last gasp of anything he did that was really, truly creative. And I wish I could remember the name of it off the top of my head. I was going to say Havana, but that's Robert Redford. That's mm-hmm. not Charles Yeah, Bruce. no. Yeah. I don't even think White Buffalo got a wide nationwide release, because I don't no. think it ever got released here in New York. But what did get released... Wide is Orca. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. I actually like Orca a lot because it's. 
I don't know. It's just one of those movies that you sit there and watch. Well, it's got Richard Harris. And what happens is that he kills a orca, which is, mm-hmm. for those of you uneducated morons out there, a killer whale. The orca's mate starts stalking Richard Harris and taking revenge on him. <laughs> Who's in the movie? She gets a leg bitten yeah, off. Yeah, that was Bo Derrick. It was Bo, Bo Derrick, right, yeah. Film. She not only gets a leg broken, but later on, the same broken leg gets bitten off behind the killer whale. Well, you know, the killer whale wants something to crunch on. I guess so. But I remember he would boast about this. Jaws, don't forget to see the pretty girl gets, get out pretty girl, gets, gets chomped on. And it was Charlotte Rampling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very underrated actress. That one was a disaster. Then, of course, you had Flash Gordon, which was, of course, Dino's attempt to do Star Wars Star better. Wars. What he eventually ended up getting was something very different from Star Wars. If anything, it was truer in spirit to those old school serials. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I tell people, if you really want to see, and if you don't want to go to the library, and I tell people this all the time because I know I talk a lot about the 30 serials. If you're at all interested in seeing what they were like, go to your local library. You'd be surprised. They got a whole bunch of them there that you can borrow for free, just like a book. And you can check them out and see for yourself. But Flash Gordon was very true to the spirit of those 30s Saturday morning serials with the special effects that are obviously special effects. We can tell that the Hawkmen are hanging on wires. This is really old school special effects stuff before they started CGI and everything. If you want to see how special effects used to be done, this is a good way to see how it was done. Right. The thing about Flash Gordon is everything is neon, everything is bright. And oddly enough, to tie in with something we talked about earlier, Flash Gordon is a quarterback for the Jets in this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, in this one, yeah. In the original in the 1930s, he was a polo player. Yeah. Don't laugh, folks. Polo was a major sport back then. Yeah, but this one, they made him a football player. I can't wait to see what they're going to do if they remake. Because, you know, every couple of years they talk about we're going to remake Flash Gordon. I can't see it happening myself. Right now, Siffy has the rights to all the King Features characters. Yeah. We all saw what they did with Flash Gordon. Oh, Gordon's. yeah. Oh, man, the less said about that, the better. This is what I'm talking about. People want to rag on Dino De Laurentiis, Mm -hmm. but his Flash Gordon was true to the spirit of the comic strip. If you saw the comic strip, okay, Mm -hmm. I can see that. There was nothing of that in that abortion of a TV series. Much as Conan the Barbarian, probably one of the manliest films ever made, is very true to the Robert E. Howard aesthetic. Oh, absolutely. Not so much the sequel. Well, that was Conan the Family Barbarian. I think that was the biggest problem. Somebody pointed out to me that Conan the Destroyer was PG-13. Exactly. Whereas, of course, Conan was hard, hard, hard. Yeah, and people look at it now and they say, uh, what's the big deal? Back then, Conan was considered an exceptionally violent movie. Mm -hmm. The first one. It was true to the spirit of Robert E. Howard. Not as much as another movie that both me and you right. have praised many times, The Sword and the yes. Sorcerer. Which to me, that's pure Robert E. Howard right there. Right. And I don't care what you'd say. They can disclaim it all they want to. But Conan, that was it. When you saw it, I said, oh, that's the Conan I know from right. the Marvel comic books and Robert E. Howard. I want to go back briefly to Year of the Dragon sure. and Desperate Hours because I want to point something out here. After the Heaven's Gates fiasco, Michael Cimino couldn't get arrested in Hollywood. What did I just say? Nobody would hire him to photograph right. a kid's birthday party. The fact that Laurentis stood by him, not just for one film, but for two. Yeah. The next thing he did was The Desperate Hours. Uh, Didn't he do The Sicilian for him as well? Also? Yes, he did. You're My, right. Yeah, Michael yes, Cimino did. did The Sicilian, and that was again produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. This was the guy who said, you come and work for me. It's okay. I believe in you as a person. Right. You and I have talked about Heaven's Gate in the past, about how its reputation is one of the worst films of all time. No, it is, no. Yeah. It, it's a bad film, but it is by no means the worst film ever You think made. it's bad? I think it's a 
severely flawed in certain spots. But as you and I have said many times, we respect an interesting failure yeah. more oh, yeah. than a success that has no heart. And so, at least you can see in this movie that Chimino actually. I think put, it's, it's a two-hour movie struggling to get out of four and a half hours of crap. Yeah, and I've seen both versions. Turner Classic Movies has shown both versions, and they'll do it in one night. They're insane. Right. They'll show the two-hour version first, and then yeah. Robert Osborne come out and say, I'm going to show you the four-hour version, right. and you choose whichever one well, you the, like. The, the, the second version, the version that sometimes went out as the Johnson County Massacre, actually it's 96 minutes, right. and it's totally nonsensical. Here we are, we're talking about one of the major flaws in Heaven's Gate is that it is a four-and-a-half-hour-long, bloated film Oh yeah, composed of the equivalent of canoodling. Here's 25 minutes of Chris Christopherson and Isabel Huppert roller skating. Yeah. But what they did to create the 93-minute version is how not to edit down a movie. Exactly. There is a movie that could be about two hours, maybe two-and-a-half hours in there if they trim down some of the indulgences that Shimino made. And even, I have to admit, you got the scene that got the famous roller skating yeah. scene. It goes on for like 25 minutes. Is that necessary to the movie? Absolutely not. You can cut it out. Do I like it? Yeah, for some weird reason, I like it. The things like the whole, I think it's a 20-minute sequence at the beginning at Harvard. Yeah. That can be true. I don't think we should get rid of it entirely, but it could be trimmed down significantly. Right. It's the whole scene that sets up the Chris Christopherson and the John Hurt character. Right. That's the graduation. Yes. Yeah. That goes on for like about like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's really about an hour before we get into what the damn yes. movie is actually about. Right. You sit there, you say, okay, okay. And it's photographed beautifully. You can see they put money into this movie. Unfortunately, they put a whole bunch of money into yeah. the movie. You want to know what the problem with this movie was? You know how they do it now every week, and you and I have talked about this. They post how much a movie made, like yeah. box scores, and that's how people judge a movie. Well, it can't be any good because it didn't make $10 right. million dollars this weekend. Heaven's Gate was the first movie like that. Yeah. People were more concerned with what the budget was about than what yeah. the actual plot of the movie was. If there is a flaw I think Laurentis had as a producer and a mogul, he still, I don't think, ever quite grew out of being that guy in Italy who was following the latest trend. Yeah. So even though we've highlighted stuff like Manhunter and Year of the Dragon, there's also stuff like Body of Evidence, <laughs> where yeah. he looks at what Basic Instinct made at the box yeah. office and looks at what Fatal Attraction and Jagged Edge yeah. is making at the box office goes, gee, it can't be that hard. I make a one, and I get the sexiest woman in the world at the time, mm-hmm. at least in most people's mind. I get the Madonna. Yeah, Madonna, yeah. Because remember, that's the film rem- where Madonna is on trial for killing her husband by fucking him to death. That's the infamous movie with the hot wax scene. Yeah, her and Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. First off, if you're going to do an erotic thriller, Willem Dafoe, not my first choice. And this one thing that blows my mind, and I've had people that keep telling me, oh, the Boondock Saints is such a great movie. That I do piece of shit. I do not want to see William Dafoe in drag. No. <laughs> Whoever came up with that idea of Willem Dafoe... Let me, okay, let me say this. We have that on the docket, the cult film episode, where we're going to talk about midnight movies and the development and why there are very few cult films left. Boondocks Fit Saints is the last really legitimate cult movie. And let me tell you something. It's a piece of shit. It is. That's one of the worst movies I've... You know what's more interesting? A movie that they made about yes. the dickhead that made yeah. the movie. <laughs> That's more interesting. Overnight. It's Overnight, cult. yeah. We're going to talk about that at some point. I know we, we talked about we wanted to do documentaries for people who don't like documentaries. Yeah. That's more interesting to watch than the Boondocks Saints. To me, the Boondock Saints is the ultimate expression of that principle. I, I keep 
citing about how people looked at Tarantino and thought they knew how to make a Tarantino film. Yeah. Because that movie is so incredibly bad that none of these characters have any life. I feel so sorry for an actor who I like a lot, Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah. I like. I think if this guy really got a big break, he could break out and yeah. be a major star because he's got the chops. I feel sorry for Willem Dafoe mm-hmm. in that movie. I feel sorry for Billy Connolly right. in that movie. What made Billy Connolly has probably been screwed over more often by big egotistical directors than any other actor I know. What kind of charisma? What kind of Jedi mind trick did Troy Duffy? Pull on not only the Weinstein's right. to get the money for this, and they bought him a bar. It's, yeah, especially when and you look at the documentary and you realize oh what God. a fucking monster this guy was. I said, what kind of Jedi mind trick? Did okay, he you, you remember the scene in the documentary where he gets a phone call from Patrick Swayze's agent? Yeah. Oh and my God. He, Chews him out he goes and says, on, he goes I'm on. giving you the chance because Patrick Swayze can't make it to a meeting yeah. or something. And Duffy goes, well, fuck him. He wants to be in my movie. He has to go to my schedule. I'm like, what the fuck? And how about see when he's talking to John Bon Jovi's agent and he said, John Bon Jovi is a fucking actor? I said, what are you doing? Oh, man, folks, if you have not seen this movie, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. only really do we get to see... Such an incredibly monstrous ego at yeah. work. The thing I love unless about of, this, unless of course, you if have, you know me. Yeah. And the thing I love <laughs> about this is that this guy let these people film all this stuff. Yeah, because he thought this was going to be part of this documentary that they were going to put on the DVD. Yeah, but how about the scene where he's telling the people, people that have had his back all throughout the yeah. that he's not going to pay them, and he tells them, "Yeah, I got the money." He, he tells them, "You don't deserve it." I'm keeping all the money. And I just... And the interviews they have... Because remember, part of the contract he signed with the Weinsteins was that they had to finance his band, The Brood. Yeah! And they eventually did pay for him to go up for this guy who produced the New Brothers. And they interviewed the guy and goes, this guy's a jerk. Yeah! This guy is the ultimate practitioner of the Jedi mind trap. That's the only way I can see how he could sucker all these people into his circle. It's insane. And the only thing that... Vaguely, and I mean really vaguely, approaches interesting in that film to me is the first scene where we see Willem Dafoe's character and we see him with the opera music uh-huh. in his headphones reenact the entire yeah, crime. Yeah, those are the only parts of the movie I like when he comes to the crime scene and he's putting it together how yeah. it was done. That's it. Just those scenes, because then the scenes with him at home with the Filipino gay. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like... Why is this character gay, other than... Yeah, yeah exactly. And folks, don't get us wrong, because I know back then people say, Oh, what are you doing with gay people? We got nothing. But yeah, there's no reason for his character to be... There's no reason for us to see his character at home, or see his character at a gay bar, or for that matter, to see his character giving a blowjob oh, to some guy. Oh, man. I mean, talk about... And what about, like, for example, the owner of the bar who keeps malapropism and ends up cursing people out because he can't get the right words out? Yeah. These are not... Car- I, oh, God, but we ain't far afield here. Yeah. Let me just say, though, that Billy Connolly has been screwed over so many times mm-hmm. by directors who have big egos. Because let's not forget what happened to him with X-Files, I Want to Believe. Yeah. Oh, God. That character, which was so underwritten. Another, and it was uh, another wasted... 
performing. I don't know what it is that maybe he's trying to expand himself as an actor and as an artist, and I respect that. But I still yeah. contend the only reason that character was in I Want to Believe is because they wanted to have scenes of Scully railing against Catholic priests. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Billy Connolly is what. Remember when he had that TV show yeah. on ABC? Billy Connolly is one of the funniest people I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He's hilarious. If you've ever seen a stand-up, folks, you know what I'm talking about. But then, this is not the first great English stand-up comedian who's been ill-served by American media. Okay, Irish. I just don't want him to come looking for you. That's true. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, can I just say that the big reveal at the end of Boondock Saints, that oh, this is... Yo, yeah, what yeah. the fuck was that? Yeah, that he's their father or something yeah. like that. Like, okay, like, we didn't see... Well, at least I didn't see... I saw it coming. I don't know about anybody else. The writing at that point was so lazy. But I am really, and me personally, and I'm going to make this personal here as yep. a writer, to think he got paid, what, damn near a million dollars for writing that Plus crap? a bar, plus a recording contract. And the people actually paid him good money for that yeah. crap. And this was supposed to be one of the best screenplays ever written. How do you figure? If you put the whole four hours of Heaven's Gate in front of me, and you give me the 90 minutes of Boondock Saints, and put a gun to my head and said, well, Derek, you can only watch one for the rest of your life. I'll watch Heaven's Gate. Okay, right here. Yeah. Give me that. You and I probably agree on the fact that Chimino is a great director. Yeah. He's just self-indulgent yeah. to the extreme. Right, he's misguided. And even if you look at The Deer Hunter, the film that put him on the map, there are long stretches in The Deer Hunter that you could pretty much excise whole. It's an hour before you get yeah. to Vietnam. The whole thing is just character set up with the buddies going deer hunting and they had the wedding. Chimino, okay, his problem is... He was a product of his era. You remember as well as I do. Yeah. Back then, that was the era of the auteur director. Yeah. You had guys like Francis Ford Coppola, and you had George Lucas, and you had Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. and they were the stars, not the and actors. And Altman. Altman, right. Yeah. There are a lot of... I mean, so these guys, they went to the studio, and they said, listen, you're going to give me this much money, and I'm going to make my right. movie the way I want to do it, and you got shit to say about it. And they just kept shoveling money into yeah. Camino's pockets. people like Scorsese and Coppola tended to hit it out of the park more often than they, yeah. than they fell on their face. Exactly. There were all these producers in Hollywood going, oh, well, maybe we should give money to this Chimino guy. We don't want to be on the outside if he, if he turns out to if hit If he it turns big. out to be big. And as a matter of fact, when Heaven Gates come out, that put paid to that era of Hollywood. And because that, yeah, because it killed the, the studio. Yeah. I don't think any other movie can lay claim to that. Yeah. Heaven's Gate destroyed United Artists. Yeah. After that, the heads of the other studio came together and said, this shit will never happen yeah. again. <laughs> and it did That is correct, sir. So we've covered a whole lot in this episode. Once again, time. it's another one of these director's court where I think we've actually only talked about Dino De Laurentiis for, what, about 20 minutes? But actually, everything that we were talking yeah. about was tangentially related to that mm-hmm. because the whole mogul thing and yes. the whole director and him giving people different chances and all these yeah. other things that go on. I think it related. Let's throw this out as we wrap up. Name one De Laurentiis film you wish people would see and one you wish they would avoid. I would have to say one that you should avoid. Mm, that's hard to pick. I know which one that I would, would tell people to go see okay. right off the top of my head. Year of the Dragon. Go see that because... Which ties into what we were just talking about right. with Chimino. Yeah, because that was not only a comeback for him too, but that was a comeback for Mickey Rourke. Right. That was Mickey Rourke's first big comeback. This was Chimino realizing, gee, I fucked up. And working hard. And Mickey Rourke created. realizing, yeah. yeah, I fucked up too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And but, of course, what they do, they went right back out and did a self-indulgent remake of The Desperate Hours. Yeah, and of course, oh, one of our favorite movies, Manhunter. Yeah, well, you see, know, that's my yeah. choice for film, because... 
everyone talks about how wonderful the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter is. Everybody loves that whole series. Mm -hmm. The only reason we have the Ratner-directed Red Dragon was so that they could have a version of that story with Anthony Anthony Hopkins in it. To be honest, they were very upfront with that. That's the only reason we're going to remake that, because we wanted... uh, You know, I will go so far as to say, I don't hate it. It's not a bad movie. It's It's very different. It's unnecessary, and it's extremely different. It's much more mainstream Hollywood circa 1990 than Manhunter, which is a Michael Mann film when Michael Mann is obsessed with neon Mm -hmm. and with images and it's a much it's more of a Michael Mann movie actually than a Hannibal Lecter because actually Brian Cox who plays Hannibal Lecter really has what about like 10 minutes worth of screen time if that that. he has two extended scenes yeah Yeah. and he's a much different Hannibal Lecter oh absolutely yeah but this is much more of a Michael Mann movie the Brett Ratner one that's very much a product yeah to fit into that Hannibal Lecter series and also the thing is is that Manhunter because Mann used little known actors. William True. Peterson at that time was just starting Kim out. Greased. Dennis Farina. Dennis one of Farina, our, Tom one of our, one of yeah, our In fact, that's the great thing, because you look at Manhunter and you see many of the actors who will show up in Man's that, yeah. Crime Story. And of course, Stephen Lang. Stephen Lang, yeah. Who gets yeah. set on fire. Yeah, one of our favorites, yeah. Because they're using actors who we didn't see at that time, we weren't familiar with, there's a little bit more veracity to the story. Whereas, obviously, Red Dragon is the big budget sequel slash prequel to Silence of the Lambs. Right. It's their way of getting something done because you know you want to see more Hannibal. Exactly. Like, for example, okay, Tom Noonan plays the Tooth Fairy in Manhunter. In Manhunter. And Ray Fiennes plays him in Red Dragon. Red Dragon. Very different portrayals, but both equally valid. And yeah. Both very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Both of them made very interesting choices. Yeah. In playing that character. Who could have been just another crazy serial killer. Which yeah. Which actually, which is what elevates these movies out of just being just pulp. See, that to me, okay, is what always fascinates me about this kind of loose series that Thomas Harris has written. Even though Hannibal is a factor in all of these films Mm -hmm. and all of these novels he's not the primary factor there's always this kind of like other serial killer that he's contrasted against he almost looks at like the lesser of two evils compared to the tooth fairy or buffalo bill or whatever they call the pig guy (laughs) yeah the pig guy yeah okay for dealer with this movies i would say people watch year of the dragon definitely watch king kong if for nothing else that's probably the movie he's most associated with the first remake of king kong because this was the first time that any producer had tried to remake a classic movie on such an audacious level and above all and was proud of it too he was a showman yeah. And this was it. This was like his baby. When Monkey Die, I everybody cried. cried. <laughs> Nobody cried when the shark died. <laughs> and of course, Flash Gordon. My choice for, because I want to choose a film that maybe people have not seen. When I say films that maybe that you should see, and I'm looking down this list, one of the ones I would probably suggest is take a look at The Brinks Job. Oh. The Peter Falk comedic caper film, mm-hmm. which if you like the Steve Soderbergh, Danny Ocean films, mm-hmm. you probably would like this. Yeah, or the gang couldn't shoot straight because yeah, exactly. it's about a bumbling bunch of... I would also suggest, if you want to go back that far, look at Crazy Joe. Crazy Joe, I mean, it's very much an exploitation 
amazing film, but it's it's really, really good. Didn't De Laurentiis also produce, and probably I'm thinking of the Charles Bronson connection, the Valachi Papers? Yes, he did, in fact. Let's see, films to avoid. Well, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, yeah. Avoid. Oh, and of course, yes, the other one I want to say that people should watch, I agree with you 100% on this, and that Manhunter. The sad thing is that most people forget that now, because they think of Red Dragon mm-hmm. as being the... I think it didn't help that when Manhunter went into syndication, movie packages, during the time that Silence of the Lambs came out, they retitled it Red Dragon, The Hunt for Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Which is wrong on at least two counts, I can think of. <laughs> you can't hunt somebody who's already... Who's already caught. It's kind of hard to... I would them. also probably tell people to avoid The Desperate Hours, the Mickey Rourke remake of the Hunter class directed by Michael Cimino if the year of the dragon was Michael Cimino realizing I screwed up and trying to get back to a more pure form of filmmaking mm-hmm. Desperate Hours showed that he never quite got away from being self-indulgent yeah, yeah. and if you think this is bad the one he did more recently called Sun Chasers is even worse never even heard of that one Woody Harrelson is kidnapped by some gangbanger, is dying of cancer, and they go on a vision quest. My ass is falling asleep already. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very. Even as I sit in this chair, I I can feel it getting numb. (laughs) But there's a wealth of stuff, and people should remember. Because the other thing we should point out is, unlike other producers, the only person I think that's close to Laurentis, and I realize I might be committing blasphemy here, that is close to De Laurentiis in terms of what a producer is supposed to be like, Mm -hmm. in that he's a mogul as well as a is Michael Bay. Oh, okay. Where even when he's not directing a film, his films have a certain look. Yeah. And the Platinum Dune stuff that he produces with all the remakes of the horror films Mm -hmm. looks very distinctively like something he would do himself. I got you. I agree. Now, granted, the Laurentis lasted 91, so he lived a very full life, so I don't want to say we mourn him, I say we celebrate we him. We celebrate him. Someone who lived that long a life, which was filled with so much stuff. He lived. He lived. I'm sure that when he went, he had no regrets, because yeah. he, he had a life that most of us can only dream of. Exactly, my friend. And we raise up the sangria to you, and we wish you a good time in the next life. Absolutely. I guess now we have to do our little decision, since this is technically a director's court episode. Okay, now, in an unusual ruling... Yes? I'm going to sentence us to 30 days in the docket for bringing Dean into director's court. Is it going to be like that last Seinfeld episode where we're just like, yeah. Oh, no. Well, we have to be locked in a cell with each other for 30 days. That's our Can we get other people to be locked in No, no. I I can't get Kristen Bell to come in with... uh, I have rules. Oh, God. Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson is hereby <laughs> remanded, to remanded to custody for falsely accusing Mr. De Laurentiis. Yes. I guess that's it, and hopefully you will go out and look at some of De Laurentiis' product. I guess it's time for the administrative. Well, do that before we got to be locked in with 30 days. Yeah. And if we survive being locked up with each other for 30 days, we'll be back in the door. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to tell us that when the monkey dies, nobody cries, there's a number of ways you can reach us. You can send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com, which is, of course, run by the wonderful Eric Frome. You can join our Facebook group, which is Better in the Dark, and you can also be our friend 
We both are up there. We have our presence. We're not hard to find. We're not hard to find. You can follow us on LiveJournal. Derek's live journal is called Derek Ferguson's Notebook. And Tom's is called Space Monkey Mafia. You can also, you look for stuff coming from us on uh, pulpworkspress.com. There should hopefully be a new anthology that I'm editing. And where are we with that, Thomas? Since you bring it up. I'm hoping that in January, where we take our little break, we're going to go oh, behind yeah. the curtain a little bit let you know what's going on. We're trying to get a couple of extra episodes ahead so that we can take the entire month of January off. Yeah. Because we haven't had a real honest-to-God vacation. No, we haven't. We've had breaks yeah. that come, but they really were because we had family stuff that yeah. come up. In the five years we've been doing this, folks, this is going to be like we the first had, vacation. We went to Michael and said, we are expecting to take a couple of weeks off after episode one. Right. And even to further draw behind the curtain, I don't mind telling you guys, Trisha and I, we haven't been away in a long time. We have been, as you folks know, you probably heard me talk about this, we've been looking at property right. in Florida with the intention of moving down there in the next couple of years or so. So we're going down there to look at houses, and I'm also going to take the time to visit my sister in Georgia. Right. Maybe, but should, maybe you should also visit Michael. I'm sure Michael Bailey would love to have oh, right. you. Right. Know, yeah, exactly. Because you was telling me he lives in Georgia. He lives you know, in yeah. Atlanta. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking about visiting Barry Reese, because he, from my understanding, he's not too far away from where my sister lives in. Yeah, so okay. I'm planning on going down there. But I'm planning to do a lot of things. But the bottom line is that when I was telling Tom about this and we were sitting down talking about planning out things, so Tom said, why don't we just take the whole month off and just take a break for him? So the hope is if we get all three of the episodes we planned here, this brings us up with episode 99. We're going to record episode 100 on the 3rd of December. The next time we get together, we're going to record 100. And we are planning one more session where we're going to record hopefully one on one and one on two. Right. And I'm going to try to edit to get ahead, and then we're going to take some time off. Right. So then you will still have better in the darn goodness for the right. month of January. And go back and listen to some of the yeah. older episodes that you haven't listened Which to. Which you can access yeah. at www.bitdsite.com. Yeah, and one of my plans for our month off is to... The problem is that most of those stories that I solicited are fairly long. Right. And I believe in reading them in one clip. I gotcha. So the plan is to take one weekend in January, because also January's the playoffs, less football, yeah, right. so less of my intention is drawn there, I gotcha. is to sit down, take one weekend, and just go through the rest of the stories, finalize the book, then start working on which stories go where. Yeah, and I gotcha. such. The goal is Editor still, stuff. Yeah, exactly. The goal is to still have this book available for some time in 2011. Okay. And also, depending, of course, whether I get the outline finished, I think I'm going to be in the next volume of How the West Was Weird. Yeah, volume two. Which is going to be another Don Cuevo story, and it's going to see Don dealing with another kind of West, the West of Hollywood. Oh, okay. Also, if you are interested in our fan fiction-y stuff, go to alteredvisions.org. Right. And check out... because. Derek does the Avengers, and I And do Tom it. does Avengers West Coast. Yes, and in fact, you join the forums over there, too, at altervisions.org. Click on the forums, because Derek and I occasionally drop little special packages. Yes, we do. And also, there's All Pulp. Yeah, All Pulp, which is still chugging along mm-hmm. merrily. That's on Facebook as well, so you can go on that, or you can just go on Google, because it's a regular blog. It's updated every single day, right. which is what people keep telling us 
that they like about it. No matter when they go back there, there's something there, new. There's always something new. Now, are you still occasionally coming on Rick's Comics? As a matter of fact, there was a new episode last night that he posted. If you yes. folks go to the Book Cave, which is hosted by Rick Croxton, the most recent episode, I think Barry Reese was on 100, yeah. and I think this is 101. And I'm talking about a different character. I'm talking about Diamondback, who is the hero of the okay. novel. I almost was on when uh, Russ was on to publicize how the West was Right, weird, yeah, exactly, the, yeah. The times that the uh, Rick wanted to record didn't jive up with what I, yeah. I was working. Yeah, because I was on there, Russ was on there, yeah. Josh Reynolds was on yeah. there, yeah, and he wanted to join. Yeah, I'm sure if you contacted him and mm-hmm. said you were... Folks, Rick Croxton is a wonderful guy. I can't praise him enough for just giving writers such as me, who normally would have a hard time getting interviewed by anybody. Right. Rick says... Come on and talk yeah. for a while. He loves this stuff. I want to give out a special shout-out before we leave to a good friend of ours who kind of dropped off the map, but he's resurfaced. Our good friend Parker Sanfield, who used to do a great podcast. Yeah. He's going to film school, and he's promised us that we're going to get to see his first student film really soon. Yeah. He called me last night. I know he's listening to this because he says he keeps yeah. up, even though he's out there, he's going to university. Right. He keeps up with he's better... Is the media archive still around? I don't know. We'll have to look, and if yeah. it looks, we'll have to... For what it lasted, it was a fun little podcast. Yeah, yeah, he did, what, like almost a dozen of them? Yeah. I mean, did he, he did quite a few. And he was really a nice guy, and he said that he just wanted to do a podcast because he enjoyed listening to yeah. us, so, and it sounded like so much fun. Uh, granted, we're coming up in five years. How do you feel about that when you hear people like Parker... And people like Michael from Chin Spoker versus Punter telling us that we inspired them. Humble. It's, it's quite it's, frankly. It, it makes me feel kind of odd at first. I just, I don't know, I, I still on some level think that we're just shouting out into a void. Yeah, I know that you and I never got into this yeah. with the intention of influencing people or. Yeah. Because. Really, we're just two guys farting around doing a mm. podcast. When it comes down to it, we're not curing cancer, right. we're not curing the economy. But on some level, people are enjoying what we're doing. And that's very rewarding, and that's very enriching, and it's very humbling to think that people enjoy what we're doing so much that they're inspired. So, that's it. And once again, we hope that you check out some of Dina DeLaurentis' output. Mm-hmm. And until next time, just remember that nobody else makes the podcast a cry. <laughs> but here at the Better in the Dark, we make it the podcast to cry. And what else we say? We say, I'm going to see a movie. movie. <laughs> Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Over the past 174 weeks, Desmond Reddick has picked the brains of some of the greatest upstarts and legends in the horror genre across all media. This is Brian Keene. This is F. Paul Wolf. This is Greg Lambert. Hey, this is Lily Vaughn. Hi, I'm Jack Ketchum. This is Steve Niles. This is Joe Lansdale. I'm Vincenzo Natale. This is Gene Colin. He has even gone toe-to-toe with some of the most dangerous, deranged, and most outspoken minds the entertainment world has to offer. Yeah, you're Superboy. This is Dirk Manning. This is Chris Alexander. I am Jeff Ferris. Hi, this is Kevin Pollack. Greetings from Tromerville. I'm Lloyd Kaufman. But all that comes to a boil in episode 175 of Dread Media. Desmond Reddick will face his greatest challenge yet. An interview threat so diabolical and monstrous that he hopes for much more than a great interview. He hopes to survive. Join him January 4th at DreadMedia.com. The fate of humanity may just hang in the balance. I must not fear. 
Here's the mind killer. And here's the little devil that brings total obliteration. Well, hello, Mr. Phantom. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E. Jan Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Sam and Will of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Des Reddick of Dread Media, Ben and Drew of Cinecultania, Eric Frome, and of course, all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark has a strict shoot-it-dead policy when it regards to creepy frog-turtled alien dudes. So stay away from us, E.T. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.bitdsite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-dot.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that if you're going to give your lover a giant foam Kong, baby, be sure to have plenty of giant latex Godzilla on hand for protection. Matu! Miranda! Let's go! Okay, then. That's it. Oh, well. Who wants to live forever? <laughs> Die!